We'll just get this out of the way first. So I'm sure I'm probably the one millionth person to ask you this, but how did you get your name? My name came from my father back in the late 80s, early 90s. They remember when the the LeMay's parenting classes were like the dads coach the mom. You know, the exaggerated breathing patterns and where everybody goes to like the birth classes. Mm-hmm. And so when my mom was giving birth to my sister, there was basically a shirt in the gift shop that said, I coached a real winner. And the family name was Winner. And so, you know, maybe a few months later, when my mom announced that she was pregnant with me, you know, he basically, you know, called shotgun on it and said, I'm going to name her, you know, a real winner reality winner oh wow yeah from a (laughs) t-shirt wow wow that's awesome so okay again like with your i think with your story it's so important to just i just want to give you the opportunity to kind of just from the very beginning explain how you even got into because i know you were in the air force first and then became an intelligence contractor, but like, even from like a kid, like what was the path into just going into some branch of the military and then, you know, eventually becoming a contractor, but like, where did that all begin? Honestly, this is going to sound really stereotypical, but it began right after 9-11. It, for my father, he was a psychologist and a theologist, even though he never had a career, that's what he got his master's in. And so for him, It was like that, the intersection of psychology and theology to create this toxic extremism. And he had always spoken to us like we were adults. So even though I was nine years old, that was pretty much the only thing for the next two years that he would ever talk about. Mm. And so basically we would drive down with him to his house because he wasn't living with us. And it was a 90 minute drive there and back every other weekend. He was very, very like adamant about getting his time with us. So it was at least three hours of him just talking about what he saw on the news, what his opinion was, what his analysis of the incident was. You know, he just looked at it from every angle. For him, it was very much like I always call it his own personal like Da Vinci code Mm. where he wanted to solve it. And so I learned a lot as like a nine and 10 year old about the extremism behind it, then I think anybody at my age was getting. And I was so, I was always very interested in that. And another kind of another example of what fascinated my dad was when religion pushed people to violence. So right before I was born, that was when Salman Rushdie's The Satanic Verses, that whole, the fatwa happened. And so my whole childhood, you know, as a little girl, I would see that on the bottom shelf of our bookshelf. And he would always point to that one amidst all these Stephen King books, right? He would point to that one and be like, people died over this book. That one's important. Mm -hmm. You know, so I waited my whole life to be old enough to finally read that book and to read that in a post 9-11 world and understand. And so immediately began to study Islam and realize like that's not the religion at all. And that this is a political movement and this was a political terrorist attack. I wanted to be part of the solution to that from a very young age. So even in high school, I was kind of a nerd. I studied Latin. And in that, I learned that 
picking up of a language, you be, have to become a part of that world. And I immediately understood if you want to be part of the solution, you have to immerse yourselves in every other language. Mm. And luckily, my older stepbrother was in the Air Force and he was a linguist. So even though I was, you know, I had all these opportunities for scholarships and engineering because I was good at math, you know, I had a perfect GPA. I knew there was only one school in the entire world that could get you fluent in any language in a year. Mm. And that was the Defense Language Institute. And so it was my goal to enlist. And I started with the Army. They said they were going to take me. And my parents said, no, you're going to go up into the Air Force. And so I joined the Air Force and went to the Defense Language Institute with the intention of being part of the counterterrorism solution. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, the, I think that's it's cool that it's coming from a really real place in terms of you know, just what you grew up reading and seeing and that inspiring you to to go in that direction. And, you know, I know there's a, a lot of stuff that we can't get too deep into, but obviously, you know, fast forwarding to uh, your work later as a contractor, if you would like to yourself, I guess, just describe your experience and what happened and just say like, however much you can say, but um, feel free to, you know, in your own words, just describe, I guess, the incident. Right. The incident. <laughs> <laughs> I was less than a year out of the Air Force and I felt really conflicted about that. But I knew that my career as a linguist was pretty much trapped between two bases in the whole world, Maryland and Georgia. And I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to deploy. I wanted more experience so that I could someday have the resume to show like the UN human refugees, you know, the UNHCR, the, you know, the Red Cross, all of these different humanitarian aid groups that I was viable and I could work overseas for humanitarian aid. And I knew that being in the military alone wasn't going to give me that resume. And I knew that basically going into the contracting world and going from one contract to the next would get me closer and closer to overseas and experience, then I could have a better resume. I just felt like going to college and getting a master's degree so I could get an entry-level internship was such a backwards way to go around it. And so that's what I set out to prove when I picked up that contract in Georgia. My heart wasn't set on my work, and I had also recently lost my father. And I was pretty much, the only thing I cared about was doing CrossFit and teaching yoga. So I lived two very different lives. You know, this one where it was like, I'm going to put in the hours and the work so I can pass out blankets at a refugee camp, you know, in Afghanistan. And then the other part of me was like, my life passion is weightlifting and yoga. So, you know, I just psychologically, I was very disconnected from everything. And of course, if you remember the first half of 2017, it was like, our institutions are broken right? What is true? There was one question that was tearing our society apart. And I sought to fill that in. So I, yes, I basically violated 793E of the Espionage Act of 1917, which is willful retention and disclosure of national defense information. And I sent a document to the media and I was 
shortly after, apprehended by the FBI, arrested and charged. And I pled guilty. From day one, I've always taken responsibility. Even if things didn't seem fair at the time, uh, my experience in prison was traumatic. I've always accepted responsibility from day one. I've never denied what I did. You know, whether or not I would have fought it differently in court if the law was worded differently is a story. And that's why, you know, one of my mother's goals and my goal is to basically reform this law the way it's written and give their space for defendants like me to make a national public interest argument. Like I did this without intent to harm. Um, fortunately, the way the law is written right now, there is you legally are not allowed to make that argument. Mm-hmm. And that's really disturbing because that means that once you are charged with that by the government, they can tell you who you are. They can tell the court who you are, how you feel, how you felt, what you intended. And by law, you are not allowed to counter that. Mm. And that's a very scary place to be. Yeah. This podcast episode is sponsored by Arbor Vitae Wellness Center here in Santa Monica, California, where they offer services such as chiropractic care, physical therapy, acupuncture, and massage therapy. A lot of you have heard me talk about injuries I've dealt with on the podcast, and I reached out to Arbor Vitae a few months ago to get help with my neck and back pain, and the owner, Dr. Gerges, uh, we call him Dr. G, uh, he's done nothing short of an amazing job. He didn't just help relieve the physical pain, uh, but he showed me how the mental and spiritual aspects of my life are important to maintain for my physical health. A lot of you guys that listen to the podcast are musicians, athletes, or dancers, and we regularly get aches and pains, and it's so important to get help from somewhere like Arbor Vitae that takes the time to understand our demanding lifestyles. And I mean, no matter what you do, we're all spending time sitting down every day. You know, we're on our computers, we're driving and whatnot. So if you just want to feel better in general, Arbor Vitae Wellness Center is the place for you. All right, let's get this episode started. Wow. I can't imagine, you know, being in your shoes in this experience and that it's hard for me to put my finger on it. Something just tells me that going up against the federal government is not your typical court case, you know, in terms of like versus going up a corporation or just some other person. I can imagine how limited one could feel going up against something like that. And I think like what I'm really curious about is where your mind was at just during all this. And obviously, I'm sure you weighed the risks, you know, the pros and the cons with what you're doing, but like, where was your mind just like while deciding whether or not to leak the report? So I live with eating disorders and OCD. There is no part of my personal life that is impulsive. I envy people who are impulsive in their day-to-day life or can basically operate on a schedule that's inconsistent from one day to the next. That is not me. And yet I did not think about the repercussions. I did not think of this as breaking the law or a criminal act. I did not have a personal defense attorney on hand. I did not even study what other leakers had been through what the legal ramifications would be. 
and it may just be the trauma blocking it. But even to this day, I don't know what really made me decide at that moment in time. You know, the closest I can get is to refreshing that is by listening to the interview of me with the FBI on the night I was arrested, because that's the closest I can say is, you know, NSA at the time kind of had this hostile environment where they were showing Fox News. And I had reported that it made me feel uncomfortable. And, you know, I couldn't stand doing my job and then watching that every single day, you know, because it was propaganda and it did tear down our institution daily. And I said, I really feel uncomfortable with this. You know, I felt uncomfortable with the race baiting segments and that I would have to basically, you know, accept that this was part of my work environment. So I think a lot of that was just a constant, you know, splinter in my hand And I think it could have just been something that day just made me say, fuck it, like, let's do it. But this was not well thought out. It wasn't well planned. It wasn't something I had been stewing over. It was maybe just something I did one day in acquiring the document and then the next day and sneaking it out and mailing it. I do remember that I mailed it. I didn't even try to be covert about that. You know what I mean? I, it was from a mailbox that was across the street from the Yoga studio. And so it was after I subbed it Tuesday night yoga class, mm. basically. I mean, it was this was completely absent-minded for something that upended my entire life and unfortunately caused a lot of pain to my family, most importantly. I don't think I thought about it very much at all, wow. which is very strange for me. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I mean, I would not have guessed that for sure, but... I do understand, uh, you know, you might find yourself, there's like a, there's certain moments where this exact combination of like things you've recently experienced plus who you fundamentally are and just like, just where you are in that moment where that like, I mean, everyone, those fucking moments. The culture of 2017, I don't know if you remember, like you learned what the media cycle was. Right. And every Friday afternoon at 5 p.m., like the journalist deadline, mm-hmm. there would be a leak. Yeah. Every Friday. And nobody ever, I mean, I should have known that. Like, don't be the first one caught. <laughs> like, because every Friday, and there was never any consequences because they never caught them. You know what I mean? So it has been building up that leak culture. And then the idea of what, when we saw what we saw, we said, oh, that'll be leaked by Friday. And it wasn't. And it was so like, you know what I mean? It was just like such a letdown. And so you do have that moment like, why are you waiting for somebody else? Like, if not me, then who? Right. You know Mm. what I mean? That's like the closest I can remember as to like what really like, what that defining moment was. Yeah. And just like, obviously this happened years ago and... If you can also kind of even let me know and, and everyone listening, just what has happened recently, because I am just had a suspicion that with the January 6th hearings coming up and just a bunch of stuff that I've seen, like older cases and just older things coming back. But why now has your story like made such an impact recently? Uh, well, I could say probably in the last calendar year, me physically exiting the prison. You know, I wasn't allowed. You do have the right to speak to journalists. You do have the right to conduct interviews when you are in the BOP. 
they would not give me that right. They would not approve those contacts and they would basically deny every media request, which is not usual for anybody but me. And so I had been pretty much silent with the exception of if one of my emails or one of my telephone statements were to be, you know, relayed to the media. So when I got out and I understood that I could do some interviews when I was on house arrest, it was kind of game on. But then the, you know, the halfway house was like, well, actually you can't. We can't tell you why. You didn't sign a piece of paper acknowledging that you can't, but you can't. Anybody who's ever been on an ankle monitor knows. I mean, if you don't feel like you've been owned before, like it is, it's like they call anytime, day or night. It doesn't matter if you're in the shower. It doesn't matter what you're doing. If you don't answer that phone, you are escape status. Um, If they don't like how you're living or if they just feel some type of way, they can rescind that. They can pull you back into custody at any moment. If you don't have a job, they can pull you back into custody. But if they don't like who you work for, if they don't like your employment setup, they can deny you the right to have that job. Um, Mm. I found a job that I could do online from home doing graphics for a documentary. And they said, well, nobody's ever worked from home before. And I said, Mm. well, have you heard of COVID? A lot of people can work from home on their computer. Uh, that they wouldn't give me the right to do that until my attorney got involved. It was just this whole thing. Like everything they did was just to exert authority. I had drug tests every 10 days for six months. Yeah. I didn't have the right to drive. That meant I had to find one of my parents to take me. You know, it was a 53 mile drive through traffic. You had exactly 60 minutes to get there or else you'd be escape status. Just constant. Oh, oh. We were allowed social passes out. We were allowed shopping passes out. But when you would call and tell the halfway house that, okay, it's time to go, they'll say, oh, well, they actually changed the policy two days ago because of COVID and you're not allowed in public anymore. Mm. But they wouldn't notify you until you're ready to go out into public, you know, and your family's ready. Getting ready to go out to eat with my parents for the first time in five and a half years. And then being told when I called, like everybody's standing by ready to leave and I'm calling. And then they said, oh, well, no, we changed it because of COVID. It doesn't hurt me. It hurts my family. So there was a lot that I went through from last June to November. And then soon as that ankle monitor came off, you know, articles started coming out. As soon as the ankle monitor came off, CBS came down and we filmed the 60 Minutes piece, which first aired in December. And then since then, it's like, I've done podcasts. Our show was on Broadway over, um, not our show, but I say like the show that they did of my FBI interrogation made it to Broadway over Thanksgiving. And now it's a movie. You know, they're making a movie. There's another film coming out. Ever since I've been able to interact with people, all of these projects have just like taken flight. And just to bring my story in, because this could happen to anybody. And it's really, once you are, once you become property of the Department of Justice, it is, it's the most terrifying thing in the world. Yeah. Again, I can't, I can't imagine. There's a certain type of confidence we all carry ourselves with when we go out into the world and we know for a fact our hair looks fucking great. Uh, What? My girlfriend dumped me. I'm getting evicted. Lost my job. Doesn't matter because at least my hair looks great. That's how powerful good looking hair can be. 
cutting up barbershop here in Santa Monica is going to have you looking right for your next date, whether it's for work or if you just want to look in the mirror and be proud of that person that looks back. Ladies, gentlemen, scammers, thieves, if you're in LA and want to guarantee a good looking head on your shoulders, schedule your appointment with Cutting Up Barbershop and tell them OC sent you. You're welcome. You know, in, in getting ready for this and looking forward to talking to you, I think just like looking at the dialogue surrounding uh, your case and you and just everything, you know, I, I think a lot of people have. Well, I mean, I'm sure you've seen a lot of them, a lot of people's opinions and all this. And I think where, you know, where I'm really interested in is just, I think to me, a lot of this just sounds like stuff coming from left field. I don't know if you would want to talk about or explain it, but just seeing things like people accusing you of being like a Taliban sympathizer and whatnot, and I guess pulling up things from your past that make you seem as if you were involved in, you know, pretty sinister stuff. I don't know if you can comment on any of that, but where's that coming from? Actually, I can. Okay. That only time that was relevant was during one bond hearing. So the federal government goes through my notebooks and my journals where I am a subject matter expert on extremism in Afghanistan. And one of my projects was actually start to study neurology. So I had been viewing lectures by Dr. Robert Sapolsky from Stanford and understanding what trauma does to the human brain. There's also another book that came out probably 20, 30 years ago, and it's called The Science of Evil. And it's the actual quantification of the brain's capacity to handle empathy and compassion. Mm. And in times of war, the male brain actually goes down to a level one and the level zero is an absolute sociopath, right? So I was studying the patterns of extremism in Afghanistan over the past 50 years and lining it up with early childhood trauma. And it seems like anytime there's extreme violence for a period like the early Soviet invasion, 20 years later, you have another extremist group coming out, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to relay these cycles. And of course, in what, 2014 was the, you know, the dawn of ISIS. They first came out to the world. And that as somebody who was in the military and somebody who studied extremism, that, I mean, the level of savagery, you know, was just so extreme. But if you go back about 18 years and look at the violence that was going on in that part of the world, and you look at the early childhood trauma that took place and the lack of essential childhood nutrition, now you look and so you have almost like a generation of young men who are at a level one empathy. So I had a lot of notes about that. And so they just took a bunch of notes. They left out the neurology sections and they only highlighted, oh, well, she's writing down the history of Afghanistan in her notebooks. And they said it aloud in a white Southern District of Georgia court to a judge who has no personal knowledge or no personal experience in national security and foreign affairs. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody who does uh, petty criminal cases out of Augusta, Georgia, has no idea what's going on outside the U.S. borders. And that scared him. That was enough to make him think, oh, well, she's writing about it. And I wanted to write a book about the cycle of war and that the global war on terror in using violence 
has only further entrenched us in the cycle of extremism. Right. And our only way to dig ourselves out of that cycle is through humanitarian aid. And it's through unconditional compassion. And there was another segment, and that's why I wanted to start with the way my father introduced me to Salman Rushdie. He later on became my favorite author. And I wanted to write, I wanted a fatwa. I was 24 years old and I wanted to write something along the lines of the satanic verses that would just be explosive. And so I had a passage in a book that basically the thesis of the book was that the second coming of Christ was going to come. The Messiah was going to come back, but he would come back as a fundamental Islamist extremist. Mm. You know, and it would be like, would Christian nationalism in the United States accept the second coming of Christ if he wasn't white and he was in Afghanistan with the Mujahideen? They took the thesis of the book that kind of set up that structure of basically painting it out, you know, in that sort of the biblical, uh, the passion of the Christ about how Mullah Omar was betrayed by bin Laden mm. and how, if you look at the, what happened after 9-11, you know, I was writing that out to be like this really offensive, but not illegal sort of novel. And they left out the top portion. And the top portion was where would Christ be today? Looking for Christ. Where would he be? What would his skin color be? Like, how would he be? Mm. You know, and so when the prosecution read out that line and the judge's eyes got big and was like, oh, yeah, she definitely thinks that, you know, these people are great when I wasn't saying that they were great. We had our attorney say, can you please, you know, the FBI agent, can you read the top part of the page? Yeah. And it just embarrassed the hell out of him to start off with, okay, this girl's actually looking for the Messiah in the modern age. You know, the mm -hmm. modern Messiah is not going to be a capitalist. He's not going to speak English. He's not going to be white. And it just, it turned it on its head, but that was the only part that the media didn't cover because it's not scandalous. So basically like, and obviously with your work and what you've studied in your background, it wouldn't be totally out of left field for you to have, you know, things related to religion or covering Islam specifically and I mean, so it just sounds like you're basically saying that they used a or they tried to like correlate both, you know, you leaking the report and using this as like, a oh, and we're not sure what else she could be involved in. But you're saying that basically they used what you were learning in your free time as like they try to like correlate the two. Right. OK. Um, yeah. You know, I wanted to understand extremism inside out. And that was something that was personal to me because it was psychological and it was theological. Mm. Everything always relate back to these childhood discussions with my father. And they use that against me. But the funniest thing was is, okay, but where are those charges? You know, you can't deny me bond on this hypothetical when what we are talking about is three pieces of paper sent to the media on subject XYZ, mm. but you're throwing out ABC, but I wasn't charged for that. Mm. Um, and it was just a trick that they use. It was a non sequitur. And the court having, like I said, having no experience in national security, were totally unqualified to handle this case. They got spooked and didn't give me bond over that. And once I didn't get bond, that was never brought up again because yeah. it was irrelevant to the case. But we weren't allowed to argue 
whether it was irrelevant or not, you know? To add to what you're saying, you and your family, you guys had, there were efforts to help you receive a fair trial. I can't remember where in the timeline all that was, but was that, I'm guessing this was part of that. It definitely was. Okay. Okay. Yeah. How many times were you able to, or did you try to make an appeal to either lessen your sentence or transfer you to certain places? What was that like? The only thing was for me was to receive bond because the prosecution wrote the rules for how I could speak to my attorneys because they said everything we spoke about would be classified. So they couldn't come visit me at the jail, but they had to come see me at the courthouse, which was an hour away from the jail. For a certain window, maybe once a week, they had to reserve it in advance through the prosecution, get approval from the prosecution for me to speak to my own counsel in a secured environment on their terms. And for that process to to be shackled, to be put in the back of a cop car, to possibly miss 30 minutes of fresh air, it was traumatic for me. You know, it greatly disrupted the only thing that kept me afloat from one day to the next. And so I didn't want to talk to my attorneys. And I was just so sure if we could appeal and we actually we appealed it three times all the way up to the circuit for me to have bond because nobody charged with this offense has ever been denied bond. I was the first one. I think the one other person was legitimately selling secrets to a hostile nation during the Cold War. You had to actually be committing espionage and be a tangible flight risk and not be a 24-year-old girl with, you know, $30,000 to her name. And, you know, I lived actually two miles from the courthouse, not even. So I was very close at hand. We were willing to do everything possible just to get me out so I could survive. I felt like I was dying in there those first six months. I could not acclimate. Like I started binging and purging. I was hurting myself. The last time I was denied bail, that was when I realized like I can't survive anymore. That was when I hit rock bottom. You know, I thought I could survive these charges against me, but, and I could survive this jail, but I can't survive my eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And so you know, for three weeks, the only thing I could think about was the daily ritual of this is how I'm going to kill myself, you know, waiting for my mom to go home to Texas because I didn't want her to be alone in Georgia when she got the call. You know, every I just I would get on the phone and scream at her, you know, go to Texas, like leave me. And she wouldn't. And three weeks, you know, you think about it like I just maybe had a day of slightly higher serotonin. Something snapped, you know, they pulled me out. I had to go talk to my attorneys. I got back just in time to know that I had missed yard call, like missed my 30 minutes of fresh air for the week. And I had a mental breakdown. I called my attorney, the one that was closest to me, and I explained to him what was going on, why I couldn't survive anymore. And he immediately understood. He's like, this is not okay. Like, you're not okay. I'm going to be there. And that was when I got medicated for depression. And a couple of weeks later, you know, started talking about, I'm ready to do prison time. We had one last ditch effort to basically file a bunch of subpoenas to support that what I released was not national defense information. That was our last ditch effort because I wasn't allowed to tell the court I didn't mean to harm anybody. You know, in fact, I did maximum damage control in my action. 
I can't say that this posed a threat to national security, but I can say that this was technically not national defense information if we can have 40 other documents from the NSA. Mm. And every single one of them got shot down. And that was when the prosecution called us and said, okay, five years. And then they called back and said, well, five years and three months because we've been waiting three months for these subpoenas. Yeah. Just brutal. <laughs> I am sure you have thought about this, you know, endlessly. But what do you think is the reason why? Because, I mean, looking at the details of what your case, you know, just like how everything went down, it's hard for me to see why you received the longest sentence ever given in with this type of case. And like you said earlier, you were the first to be denied bond in your situation. And like, again, I'm sure you've thought about this a lot. Have you come to some conclusion on that? I'm just so freaking dangerous, man. <laughs> I still ask why. My probation requirements right now, I can't leave the Southern District of Texas for any reason. So San Antonio, Texas is about two hours away. I'm not allowed to go there even for critical job training and education. I have a 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. curfew. Every single night of my life, I must be at home. My plea deal is insane. I'm not allowed to make a single dollar off of my story. Just, you know, my first probation officer didn't know what the word espionage meant, but he knew I had all these extra conditions. Like, I don't think he'd ever had to enforce a curfew in like 10 years. Mm. So he just kind of said, oh, and make sure you stay away from kids too. And I was like, what did that mean? Like, are you kidding me right now? Like, he didn't understand what I was charged with. It was insane. I'm still under those conditions. I can't go visit my family and for any reason. And I know people who, I mean, did time on actual violent charges, you know, like trafficking for white supremacist groups and they don't have a curfew and they're crossing state lines and they're still living their best life. And I'm like at a dinner party looking at my watch like, all right, y'all, it's 930. I got to go. I don't I keep asking why me because it hurts so much. Like, what is it about me that they hate so much that they're going to do this to me for the next three years? I yeah. wish I knew. I, I just if I could know, like the people always give me like the strategic reason or, you know, my dad always looks at me and he's just like, baby, you embarrassed them. <laughs> Things like that, you know, they try to lessen it, but. You know, it's really hard five years down that you don't internalize it and you don't start to believe you really are that terrible because it would be easier if I really was that terrible because then, you know what I mean? Like just to accept it, like, oh, I'm just, I really am. I do deserve this. Yeah. It's I, just a constant battle. No wise words or anything to say in reply to that other than I don't know. <laughs> how to feel about that. I've never been in your shoes and, you know, all I can do is just hear you out and just see what's what's up. I thought your story was, you know, really interesting in terms of the, the circumstances and everything. So I think it's getting a lot of support for sure, especially on social media that I see. Like you seem to have a lot of supporters on Twitter for sure. And I can only imagine that, you know, It'll be, a, unfortunately, it'll be a while for you for like things to just be whatever. I mean, what does the word normal even mean to you anymore in the sense that like, you know, I, I imagine in your shoes, it must be hard to even remember what life was like before all this. I mean, geez. You know, I do remember it was like, I wasn't happy either then. Mm -hmm. You know, I try to remind myself that. 
you didn't have it made. You didn't have a future that you could see before this. And so that's kind of what helps me. You know, I always say, oh, I had a great career and I lost it all. And I was like, no, I mean, you you were putting checks in boxes because you dreamed of working somewhere. Hmm. That didn't mean you made it, you know? You didn't have a personal life. You didn't have a social life because of your disorders. I was so empty then. I mean, I couldn't even explain to my family how I felt about my father's death because everybody was so blase and unaffected by it, except for me and my half-sister, who were the one, he was primary life support in his last couple years of life. So it was kind of like I had nowhere to go with that grief, you know? So it was like, I was very empty alone, overattached to my chat. And I, I just remember all, the only thing that kept me going was I would sit down and write down my workouts for the week. And, oh, well, tomorrow, you know, you're doing snatches and, and oh my gosh, you're going to do cloak complexes, you know, a clean and jerk complex on Thursday. And, and Fridays are the best because you just get to go in and cycle. And Saturday, you get to work out for six hours and then, you know, go get a vegan burger. And mm. I mean, that was it. And I did that every single week. It never changed just from one workout to the next. And so for me, that's how I survived jail. That's how I eventually found my place in prison as, you know, the lead physical wellness instructor in prison. And just really thought about if I could do this full time, that would be a dream come true, you know, and I had my ankle monitor cut off. I had made connections to, actually my mother did. I was like two weeks out from getting my ankle monitor cut off. And she was like, Re, I'm going to put in a, a Facebook group for Kingsville, Texas, that my daughter is a excellent fitness instructor and a CrossFit coach and see what happens, you know? And I'm just like, thanks, mom. <laughs> <laughs> so she does it and she's like, oh, you know, this girl from CrossFit Kingsville emailed me and said that she's interested. So I started emailing her and I'm telling you the same day I got my ankle monitor cut off. I couldn't even drive yet. I'm terrified of driving. My dad took me and I worked out, talked to her and she's like, all right, we'll show up tomorrow. It was two days before Thanksgiving. So they were on a holiday schedule. And by the next week, I was coaching pretty much all the CrossFit classes. Mm. Um, I hit the ground running. I never looked back. And so now what keeps me going is my next session with my clients. Are my clients progressing? What else can we offer? You know, my own athletic performance is important. I'm always trying to get back to where I was. But Definitely now, just like this new outtake on life, starting a nonprofit to bring CrossFit or to bring sports to disadvantaged kids. Because I was a good student in high school, but the one thing that really kept me out of trouble was the fact that we had tennis practice every single day hmm. and a tennis meet on Saturday. And that's a, you know, high school sports, even though you don't have to like pay to sign up, the equipment, getting a ride, it's a, such a privilege. You don't even realize it. Yeah. So I want to start like a mentorship and a sponsorship program, you know, that pairs, you know, disadvantaged kids or kids that are already in the juvenile criminal justice system with a free CrossFit membership in their city. Depending on the city that they're in, I mean, Baltimore, that's like $200 a month. That's a utility payment. Mm. And then a mentor that's really going to get on them like, hey, Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, we're going to be there. And hopefully those members, the mentors will be, you know, veterans you know, maybe law enforcement kind of trying to bridge that gap and save some lives as well. Yeah. So I'm going to get that off. It's going to be the real winner foundation and 
really just go with my gut. And people laugh at me or like, really CrossFit? And I was like, it makes me happy. That's my joy. I'm following my bliss and bringing it to others. Yeah. Hey, that's all you can do. And, you know, it's fun. I was going to say I have two more questions for you. And I'm glad you actually answered one of them in that I was just curious in terms of like what you're up to these days and how you're spending your time and if you had a new career. And you answered all of that, which is fantastic. I'm glad that, you know, you have this passion, you know, after all of this and everything that's gone on. And, you know, I would say before we close out, if you would like, just like to maybe mention anything that you're working on at the moment or just anything you'd like to promote or bring awareness to the people listening, floor is yours. I would say the greatest eye-opener of this entire experience was what it's like to be in a county jail. There's no resources, there's no hope, and there's no reason for anybody to be there unless that is the only thing you can keep an individual from committing violence. I saw so many women just passing through with addiction, with mental illness, expired licenses, shoplifting because they were hungry, domestic abuse. I don't know how it is everywhere else, but in the state of Georgia, they arrest the woman too for getting her ass beat. That's a form of mass incarceration. It's not just the federal prison system, which I can speak to endlessly as well, but mass incarceration starts at your county. And that is a democratic system. You elect your sheriff, you elect your county DA. You can choose how the drug policy in your county is enforced. You can choose if every person with expired plates spends a month in county jail. You can elect the system of bail within your own county. Hmm. Study your county politics because that's where the mass incarceration movement has the most power. Hmm. People sitting in county jail for six, seven months at a time. And if you spend that much time in jail, your people do suspect, why were you in jail that long? People who don't understand the bail system automatically assume that it's because you did something wrong and not because you don't have $2,000 sitting around on a shoplifting bail. Mm -hmm. You don't have $2,000 to pay because you're an addict. And that understanding that most of our state prisons that are then said by these county jails are, again, imprisoning people in conditions, mostly throughout the South, without air conditioning. People are dying. People are under lockdown and being treated like animals and they come out like animals mm. because they were addicts. And the only way to cope with those conditions is through feeding that addiction. I have never had a substance abuse problem in my entire life. I don't even drink alcohol. And the conditions of the lockdowns and the constant verbal and psychological abuse during COVID, the reaction, the authoritarian reaction that the Bureau of Prisons chose to take at the federal level, drove me to using drugs every day and becoming an addict. Mm -hmm. You know, and the scariest part was when they started letting up off of that and I was able to exercise and manage my mental illness. I just found a way to balance getting high with that, right? So then you become a functional addict. Mm -hmm. And it's taken me years to overcome that and understanding that our system right now has not reduced violent crime has not reduced property crime, has not reduced the rates of addiction, has only increased the rates of overdose. And that you guys out there, the listeners, study your county politics and you can shape who is sitting in your county jail with a single vote. Mm. And that's how we stop mass incarceration. We can't keep 
waiting for the president to grant clemency to 600 people doing life behind cannabis. That's wonderful. That's a miracle. I'd love to see that happening. But there's also, you know, 1.3 million people sitting in state prisons that the president can't save because we voted to have them locked up for every little thing. Mm. So democracy starts at the county and the city level. Elect your sheriff. You can control your police department because you elect your county sheriff. Yeah. And that's where democracy happens. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for, for that. I mean, it's a really important issue. And yeah, I think you bring awareness to that. And hopefully people listening, including myself, just really take that into account. So thank you for that. I'm not for prison reform. I'm an abolitionist. I don't want any prisons because prisons have not solved murder. They have not solved pedophilia in our society. They don't. In fact, those people are treated the best in prison. Mm. You know, they're treated better than your drugs, your white collar, pretty much better than me, you know? So if your prison is the answer to that, then tell me why they're treated better than everybody else. And tell me why mass incarceration hasn't removed it from our society. Mm. The prison industrial complex is just a way to make profit off the human body. Get rid of all prisons. Man, it's hard to argue with a lot of what you said. And I and I know there's a, plenty of people, not just in the limelight. I know recently, like we've had celebrities get involved with prison reform. But like you said, though, I think getting involved on a local level, being that's probably the biggest individual difference that we can all make is the people that we vote for directly. It's really important. So for people listening and seriously, reality, I can't thank you enough for just one, agreeing to come on here and then us just like getting this done so quickly. This is, I mean, yeah, you definitely have a story worth telling. And I don't know, it's just, it's definitely uh, an honor of mine for me to be able to just be here talking to you. So thank you. No, thank you. The pleasure is all mine. You have a great show. I love your message. I love the diversity on your show. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, for people listening, if you made it to the end, as always, thank you. This is a song called Life and we're out. Peace. Peace.